Jesus is King. This is Timothy Flanders at 1 Peter 5. This is the 1 Peter 5 podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. Today's topic, Against the Greek Schisms. We'll be discussing the newest series at 1 Peter 5, talking a little bit about the articles, answering your questions. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, objections, we'll talk about those. Before we get into our topic, I am, let me see, I'm testing out a new camera today, so I apologize if it's blurry. I under I tested it, and it looks like it uh, auto-focuses everything, so hopefully it'll look well when it comes through. But before we get into our topic, uh, I wanted to share about a new missile that has just been released this year, and some people might be interested in this uh, for their family. So this is the this is from Via Providence is the company, and they they have a a this is the Marion missile for the mass of all ages, and it has some great features. I think that it's really good for especially for children. It has these great illustrations um, throughout the text. It's a beautiful layout. Um, I think one of the one of the great things about this is that. It is good to buy for your children. Here's the um, Via Providence has vestment restoration. And uh, so it has, they have two different versions of this new missile is one is the Sunday missile. And then one is just the missile for the Latin mass itself. Um, So it's, uh, let me switch back to the, okay. So, so they, they have the Sunday missile and this has everything you need for, the every Sunday of the year, um, it has all the propers, the readings, the collects, and the and the communion, post communion. Then it has the actual um, the ord- ordo of the mass, and so it's a and it's a beautiful layout. I think it's particularly great for children. Uh, the plus is that you know you've got the Father Lassans, but it's a hundred dollars. So if you want to shell out a hundred dollars for every child, um, it can be a lot, especially if your child may not be a missile person. We all hear mass differently. And sometimes like for me, for me personally, I am not a missile person. So I, I do not hear mass, uh, particularly using the missile. Um, so some children may not be into the missile, but this is a great missile to get to your children. Uh, that's a lot cheaper, but it's also very beautiful. And it presents the, the Holy Mass. It's also great for kids to study the Mass because it has these pictures that go through the Holy Mass with all of the, the Latin uh, and English translation. So I think it has a lot going for it. It's very beautiful. Um, it's got everything really you need for an introduction to Sunday Mass. So one of the downsides is it doesn't have the daily Mass. So it just has the Sunday Mass settings. Um and then there's the smaller one is just $10. That one just has just the mass without any propers, but it still has everything you need if, if you just need the, the mass. So Marion Sunday Missile, check it out if you if you want to get that for uh, your children. It's a great Christmas gift. Um, and uh, it's a great, you know, if you're an adult and you just prefer a, a simplified version for your missile, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> lugging around this is it's a lot. <laughs> I, I actually don't even bring this missile because I, I do use some of the propers when I hear mass, but I typically just, uh, our parish prints out the propers. So I typically just take this paper that we have at the parish uh, instead of even lugging this to the mass. It's just a lot, you know, so it's a, it's a big, huge book. So, you know, especially if you're juggling six kids already. So, uh, so check it out. Um, Marion missile. That's uh, the website is via providence.com. And they have a lot of other great stuff for the domestic church, a lot of great stuff. I'll put the uh, link in the show notes. So if you go below, it'll have the link to the um, website. So take a look. They're, they're just a new new Catholics uh, bring, bringing new things for the faithful. So uh, we want to just support them and spread uh, knowledge of this new apostolate via providence so take a look at it so let's talk about the against the greek schisms so if you go to our editorial stance we talked about um most of all at one peter five we want to be for christendom 
we are for the gospel. We are for the saving of souls and society because the gospel saves souls and from souls, from the heart of man who is saved in the gospel and is being saved through the sacraments, through his the spiritual life in grace, the whole society is sanctified. And so we are fighting for Christendom at 1 Peter 5. That is above all what we are about. We are not trying to primarily be against something, be against error or uh, wickedness or sin, but before we are being for Christendom, for the gospel, and for the glory of God. And But when we go forward in this mission to rebuild Christendom, restore Catholic culture and tradition, we encounter error. We encounter these different problems that Catholics are swept up in. And we identified them in our ed editorial stance. In particular, we talked about the false spirit of Vatican I, which is one of the primary errors which is afflicting the church. And now, now this is besides all of the, the obvious errors. Now, we're, we're, we're quite aware of, of uh, you know, the James Martins of the world and various heretical bishops or, or priests or lay faithful who are spreading heresy, who are destroying souls. Those are obvious to us all. If you're a reader of 1 Peter 5, you, you are well aware of, of neo-modernism in the church and Marxism within or without the church, uh, communism, feminism, liberalism, all of these isms, which are heretical and destroying souls. But there are more subtle errors. There are more subtle errors which are inflicting the church, which we've identified as particular errors which have crept into the church that have enabled the enemies of Christ to take greater control over the church and harm her mission of for the sanctification of souls. And particularly the the false spirit of Vatican one is one of those errors and the false spirit of Vatican one. We're going to get more into this as well in the future, but the false spirit of Vatican one is in general, it is everything revolves around the Pope. The whole Catholic world revolves around the Pope. The Pope is the center of the Catholic world. We should all be paying attention to everything. The word the Pope is saying every single day and everything comes from the Pope. So this is opposed to the Catholic notion of scripture and tradition and the liturgy that is the that is what a normal catholic has lived their lives for centuries is in the liturgy in the tradition in the devotions of the faithful in christendom and the pope has been there when we need him when he needs to intervene or various things but now we live in a period of the full spirit of vatican one and this is only what has provided the foundation for the false spirit of vatican two so we can't really deal with the, the spirit of Vatican II unless we deal with the spirit of Vatican I. Now, some people misunderstand, and like I said, I'm gonna, I'll write a little essay which goes further into detail with, about Vatican I, but we are not at all denying Vatican I. Vatican I is a, it's a dogmatic council with anathemas, but we're talking about the spirit of Vatican I. How was Vatican I received? How was it perceived? How was it misunderstood by the faithful? And there's, a, there's an article on on this already in the pontificate of leo the 13th and how that affected this spirit of vatican one uh it's a very great essay i that really brings out some things that we haven't really addressed but this is this is a critical issue so vatican one but then if you're if you're in the spirit of vatican one you then might you you might uh leave the church for set of a contism set of a contism is a new error that has arisen in our in our epoch attempting to deal with the crisis but it starts with a false understanding of vatican one you start with a false vatican vatican one understanding it leads to set of a contism now once once you realize set of a contism is is internally contradictory then that might push you to the greek schisms so that's our topic today. So I just wanted to discuss a few of our articles on this um, and talk about this. If you guys have any questions, feel free to shoot them to me at any time. We'll talk about them. Um, so 
all of this is um, archived in our Eastern Orthodoxy section. Now, if you go to this started back, um, shout out to uh, Stephanie Lozinski. Um, she wrote the first article from her conversion from Orthodoxy to Catholicism. Um, this was my first article for 1 Peter 5 way back in June 11, 2019. Now, this one breaks down the basics of why I left Eastern Orthodoxy for the church led by Pope Francis, and I don't regret it. So that was what uh, started me writing for 1 Peter 5, and that was part of my uh, journey to becoming the editor of 1 Peter 5. But um, so back in 2019, so that, that breaks down a lot more of the, the dogmatics and gives a lot of sources. And then there's just, um, some spiritual journeys. And then we restarted this, this whole series just recently last week. So, um, this is, so what is this series? Most of all, um, this is our, our readership is Catholic and we are talking to Catholics. We are not attempting to engage with a full polemical apologetic with other Eastern Orthodox, because that's not our audience. So uh, if there is Eastern Orthodox who read this, read our site, and I know there are, uh, we certainly welcome them as brethren, uh, because as I said, in this, the, the most in uh, the most uh, recent um, edition, I, I said, really, the, the, the apologetic against Eastern Orthodoxy is an apologetic among brethren is what it really is, is that there are there are three Greek schisms. There are the Assyrian church, the non-Chalcedonian church, and the Chalcedonian church. There are three different Greek schisms in the East. And all of them we look upon as brethren. They're really, they are separated brethren in the, in the true sense of the word, not in the false ecumenical sense uh, of today. But they are, really are separated brethren in the sense that they are uh, fully apostolic Christians. They have valid sacraments. They have a valid liturgical tradition. Uh, stretching back to the apostles, and we treat them as brothers. And this is really the traditional view. It is not the traditional view to scorn them as just wicked schismatics and like totally evil or anything like that. That's not the traditional view. When you look at how the church dealt with the East and different tensions that arose among uh, East and West, going back to the Photian schism or the, the Achaean schism before that, Going into the Council of Lyon, uh, the Council of Florence, all of this this dealing has really been with separated brethren and just brethren, brethren who are Catholics, who are we are trying to work out different tensions. And some of these tensions are, are analogous to different things that happened in the West between, for example, the conciliarists and the papalists and things like that, things like that that happened in the West. Similar things are happening East and West as well. And so we need to treat our Eastern Orthodox brethren as truly separated brethren, treat them with charity. Uh, ultimately, the apologetic with Eastern Orthodoxy does not sort of win in a triumphal manner as it does with Protestantism, for example. Protestantism is completely off the rails. It denies the most basic dogmas of the Christian faith. And so it really has it has really not a lot. I mean, it's hard to even call them separated brethren in the sense of the basic Christian dogmas. You know, they don't even have the Eucharist, most of them. They don't even have the, the apostolic succession, most of them. So they are very, very separated. And, and we can't really see eye to eye on the most basic Christian things. No, it's different with the Orthodox. The Orthodox really are the the only christians with whom we can truly have a like a true ecumenism that's actually you know the type of ecumenism so-called that we were dealing you know we were doing at the council of leon the council of florence in the 15th century the type of working out our issues that we have always been doing for centuries with our brethren in the east so this is what we're trying to do um when we approach this delicately and charitably but Ultimately, we are our audience, as I said, is, is Catholics, fellow Catholics. So we're speaking to Catholics and we're speaking specifically to Catholics who are tempted to become Eastern Orthodox, because ultimately, uh, if you are Catholic, there is no salvation outside the church. Now, let me let me say that again. If you're not Catholic, there is no salvation outside the church. So we are we are con wanting to convert non-Catholics to Catholicism. 
but in particular, our readership is Catholics. So we're, we're, we are writing to Catholics to not leave the church for Eastern Orthodoxy, for non-Chalcedonian Oriental Orthodoxy or whatever is in the East that you find to be attractive. And so these articles are directed towards Catholics and trying to open their eyes to look a little bit more critically, a little bit more objectively at the Greek schisms. And that is what we are attempting to do here. So um, I, as I, as I write in these articles, I was Eastern Orthodox actually before I became Roman Catholic. So I, I went the other direction. And so we are trying to just help Catholics understand the issues simply because a lot of Eastern Orthodox apologetics will sort of will entice Catholics in a very shallow way uh, and not not uh, really get more deep into the issues. And so it can really lead astray a lot of Catholics who are not uh, well studied in all of these issues. Um, now, having said that, as I said, there are actually real issues that we can get into, but the real issues actually do take really years of study. They take years of study to, to deal with, to go into. And so we're not trying to exhaustively uh, deal with all of those really, really long issues, but we are trying to give Catholics some of the basics of this issue so that they're more equipped to uh, understand their own faith, understand the claims of Eastern Orthodoxy, and look at this a little bit more objectively than kind of being swept away in Eastern Orthodox arguments. So that is kind of the gist of this. Um, Christian Unity says, uh, Vatican I was stopped short by Italian troops and the fall of the Papal States. Yes, um, this there's a lot of things we can get into with Vatican I. Um, but yes, it, it certainly was stopped prematurely. Uh, there was a lot of schemas at Vatican I. They were planning to deal with a lot of things. They could not deal with more things than they could. Um, Pius IX did not bring lay Catholics to the council. That was a new thing for for uh, ecumenical councils. Um, and there, so they were unable to finish it. And as a result, that, that's, I think, one of, the, one of the historical factors that failed to inform the faithful better, perhaps. And there was a lot of bad press as well, bad media going on as well. Uh, Von Dollinger with uh, Lord Acton was uh, manipulating the council. The media were actually manipulating Vatican I in the same way the media were working to try to do and spread lies and, and errors uh, at, with the occasion of Vatican II as they did in the 1960s. So a lot of the similar issues. Uh, were arising. So I want to, any, any questions, please throw them at me. Um, but I want to focus on the issue of fatherhood. This is really one of the most difficult issues because it goes into a very spiritual reality that we are all dealing with as Catholics, is that more or less, we are abused children whether that's if you've suffered from sexual or emotional abuse that may you may be wounded by that or you may be simply just spiritual abuse just uh, the abuse of a bad father who is spiritually abusing you in the sense of the sacrileges against the blessed sacrament uh the the bad liturgies the ambiguities, the psycho fancy in the face of the Marxist governments across the world. And this is something that's deeply wounding to us. It is deeply wounding deep in our spirit, in our hearts. And it's very difficult. This is, this is very difficult. And this is one of the ways that Eastern Orthodoxy and the other Greek schisms can provoke us and entice us because unfortunately some eastern christians have the same wounds they have the same wounds against their father because it is true that some popes were bad popes and they 
either allowed something or permitted something or acted upon something, or they just get blamed for something that happened where the Catholics of the West came to the East and they did some atrocity, what have you. The, the most common one that is brought up, obviously, is the sack of Constantinople in 1204. And these are these are terrible atrocities that, that should be condemned rightly because they're wicked. They're completely against the Catholic faith. They're completely against the crusading spirit. Um, but the crusades are, are complex. We're not going to get into those. But um, so there is a much longer standing wound in the East. And this is what I talked about in my first essay back in 2019, which I called a, a pathology against Rome, which is a pathology against charity. And this is what I experienced when I was Eastern Orthodox is that they, there is, and, and I say some, because many Eastern Orthodox, especially the ones that you just find at the parish, not the ones who are going online and debating with Catholics, not those Orthodox. I'm just talking about your daily Orthodox you know, at the parish, and many of these I know because I was Orthodox, these these people have no schismatic intention whatsoever. They they would happily unite with Rome if we worked out this dumb schism and, and we were all corporately reunited. They would have no problem with that. And they're they're fine with being Catholic. They're just working out their salvation. They're not they're just not focused on working out this complex centuries old schism they're focused on saving their souls and so um but some eastern orthodox some of their leaders in the history have have sort of perpetuated this this wounding and they've used it as a victim pathology just in the same way as you know the marxists today for example in the united states the marxists today use racism as a means to uh, achieve Marxist ends, just as the Marxists use poverty to achieve Marxist ends by provoking a real wound, somebody who's wounded by injustice, for example, um, you know, the poor, are, you know, suffer injustice or whatever. So the Marxists take that and they, they stoke those flames of wounds and they, and they help people hate. They, they stoke hate so that they can create violence and revolution. And this is the same thing that has happened in uh, the history of the East. So, for example, this was um, this became acute, especially in the 13th century, when many Latins were occupying Constantinople, and there was Greeks who were there was a Greek party who was trying to use hatred for the Latins for political power. So they were actually there was uh, the uh, let me see if I can pull that up real quick from Dawson. Um, Christopher Dawson is, is what you need to read. <laughs> I mean, he, he's really the greatest historian in my, in my opinion of the 20th century. Um, but the, let me just read you some of this pathology and what I mean by that. Um, let me see. Okay. So, so basically this is this is an example of this this sort of wounding that exists in the east. So this is this is formation of Christendom by Christopher Dawson, page two seventy in the five. He says this. Um, this is in uh, the the writings of Michael of Enchialus, and this is um, so this is the, one of the patri the Greek patriarchs. He says this: Let the Saracen be my lord in outward things. The Saracen meaning the Muslim. Let the Muslim be my Lord in outward things and let not the Italian run with me in the things of the soul. For I do not become of one mind with the first if I obey him, the Muslim, but I, but if I accept harmony of faith with the second, I shall have deserted my God. Dawson continues. This was the fatal preference that would be expressed by Luke Notaris when the union of the churches were proclaimed by the emperor and the patriarch in St. Sophia in December, 1452. So this is after the Florentine union. Uh, between East and West, which had been agreed upon by patriarchs and bishops at, a, at an official ecumenical council of East and West. So this is what Luke Notaris says. You know, he's he was one of the commanders of the Greeks. He says this, quote, better the Turkish turban than the Latin mitre. And the people, Dawson says this, and the people responded with the cry, death to the Azimites. 
So this is death to the Azimites. The Azimites are us, the Latins, because this was all about the fact that we have unleavened bread in our our uh, our Latin rite. We have Latin, we have unleavened bread, and so this was used as a uh, as a tool for political power. Um, this is uh, let me continue here, Dawson continuing. For the politico-religious entente between East and West, which was the official policy of the Komneni, this is one of the dynasties of the East, had been impossible by the made impossible by the events which followed the fall of the dynasty. Only two years after the death of, death of Emperor Manuel, the usurper Andronicus had won power by appealing to the anti-Latin sentiment of the mob, which massacred the papal legate and the Italian colony and destroyed the Latin churches. So you have this faction, and if you know, if you know. Byzantine history, you know, it's it's filled with a lot of different factions and dynasties who are fighting each other and, you know, going after power. Um, but there's this strong political power in Constantinople who's actually using anti-Latin sentiment to try to gain political power. And so this is a this is one of the factors that are not this is just not discussed in you know the history of our churches, but. There is, and there pervades among many Orthodox, not all, like I said, many Orthodox are totally fine, but some Orthodox are kind of provoking and continuing this anti-Latin hatred, this wounding, which is coming from real injustice and real wickedness committed by Latins against the East. Uh, But it is this wounding. So this is where, in particular, Catholics who have been wounded by the spiritual abuse of our own fathers that we're dealing with now can find this uh find this sort of commonality here and unfortunately i mean this is all sinful uh, unfortunately but it but it's a, a real wound that we suffer and we're trying to overcome by the grace of god uh welcome to uh dan Millet, one of our writers at 1p5 he says i've been to one orthodox divine liturgy in my life for a university class i met the priest afterwards when he found out i was rc roman catholic he immediately started ranting on the sack of constantinople yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, to give you an, a parallel example, uh, if you've ever heard in history of the Hundred Years' War, you've probably heard of St. Joan of Arc. St. Joan of Arc was is the great saint during the Hundred Years' War. So the Hundred Years' War was between England and France. And so there was a, a great, uh, there was 100, 100 years of killing between East and, uh, or sorry, between uh, England and France. And um, the English captured St. Joan of Arc and killed her on false pretenses. Uh, She was excommunicated. uh, And obviously, she's been totally vindicated as a saint now. And so when do you ever hear, you know, a Frenchman bring up the fact that the English killed St. Joan of Arc? Uh, It just doesn't come up. It's it's not really in our consciousness as Catholics. And uh, this is something that... um, uh, Eric Sammons brought up in his earlier broadcast a couple days ago at crisis, he brought up how, uh, Catholics actually hate schism, at least in the modern day, they hate schism more than heresy right now. Uh, but there is something to that in the sense that universal fatherhood of the Catholic church, it binds us all to each other. It binds us all to each other in charity. And this is, this is what is the key difference is because, because of the ecclesiology of the Eastern churches. So there was a bitter, a very, very bitter rivalry between the Chalcedonians and the non-Chalcedonians. So the the so-called Eastern Orthodox of today and the Oriental Orthodox of today, and they were killing each other. There was mob violence and all sorts of things. This is in the the 5th, 6th, 7th century. And there's this bitterness. And because there's no universal ecclesiological structure, uh, that bitterness can just continue in in a schism. And there's also a bitterness between uh, Russia and Constantinople. Now we're talking about charity and ultimately this is schism is a sin against charity. And it, because in the Catholic church, we, because we have this universal fatherhood, we have this, the papacy, we have the ecclesiology, which, which includes the papacy as much as we may dislike or hate or be wounded by the current occupant of the chair of Peter. This is something that forces us all to be bound together in charity as Catholics and to suffer together as in charity as Catholics and to endure all things for the sake of the mystical body of Christ, not to leave the Catholic Church, to alleviate our suffering. 
And this is the, the heart of the spiritual issue here. It's This is the heart of the spiritual issue. Before we talk about all these doctrinal issues, the doctrinal issues sometimes are a complete cover for something that's much deeper within you that you're dealing with because there's, there's a deep spiritual issue here with fatherhood. And so that's why this is really the heart of the heart of the matter um, is that as Catholics, we will die as Catholics because we will keep charity with our brethren. No matter what, we will stay in the church. We will fight heresy, which has been creeping into the church. We will fight against it for the sake of souls, and we will not leave the church to alleviate our suffering. But we will suffer all things because charity endureth all things, says St. Paul. That is the essence of charity, and that's why we risk eternal salvation by leaving the church because there's no salvation outside the church. And one of the aspects of the reasons why that is, is because mortal sin, by definition, is the destruction of charity in the soul. Charity with God and charity with your brother. And so by breaking with the Catholic Church, you are breaking charity with your brother. And this is what risks your eternal salvation if you leave the Catholic Church. So this is what we are trying to address in this series on Eastern Orthodoxy. And so like I like I said, that our audience here is, is our fellow Catholics, is that we want Catholics to understand this issue. And there's even deeper things here uh, that we're not even getting into because, like I said, there's factors where the East is actually, you know, for example, you know, trads are critiquing this false spirit of Vatican I. We're critiquing the, the over-papalism. And that there is a sense of a legitimate critique from the East on this point. So this is something where we need to understand the truth about the East and what's going on because it's mixed. It's not, like I said, not all the East is, you know, totally schismatic in their hearts. Um, and the debate between East and West, ultimately Roman Catholicism wins the debate but only by a nose. Roman Catholicism wins the debate by a nose because we make concessions to legitimate issues. I mean, the sack of Constantinople, they may have, you know, they may have a long unforgiving spirit about that sack of Constantinople, but it was a wicked thing. Now they don't tell you that the Greeks were actually involved in that sack because it was part of a dynastic dispute between Greeks. They don't tell you that part, but nevertheless, for this, for, I mean, to, to what degree the Latins are involved in that? Yes, it, we, we totally, uh, we, we, we condemn that it's, it's wicked, you know. So, Pope Francis recently was in Greece and he, he apologized to the Orthodox. And so, yeah, there have been atrocities done by Latins to, to the East, the Orthodox. There's, there's no question. Uh, so, you know, there is, there, it is a valid occasion for an apology, but. If we're honest, it also goes the other way, too. The East did it to the West, too. So we just need to forgive each other, move on, deal with our emotional wounds, deal with these wickedness uh, things, and uh, get over it. Yeah, so Andy's bringing up the other factor of that is the massacre of the Latins by the Byzantines in 1182, which resulted in the death or dispossession of over 60,000 60, Roman Catholics. 4,000 were sold into Mohammedan slavery. It was the inspiration of the sack. Right. So, well, actually, we're going to have a a article on the sack of Constantinople and this whole historical debate and how it's been misused into this pathology that'll, that'll be coming later uh, in 2022 on, on the, uh, actually the anniversary of that um, fateful fourth crusade. Um, but this is an example of, of this type of thing. So, so take a look if, if you're interested in that, if that's something that's helpful to you, um, that's the reasoning behind this series of against the Greek schisms. Now we'll have a, uh, more articles on the way on that. Uh, I'm looking at the, something on the filioque way. I'm looking at also something to describe why we talk in the plural. When we say Greek schisms, why do we talk about these other Greek schisms between the Chalcedonians and the non-Chalcedonians and the, uh, the Assyrians and everybody else. Um, why is that a factor? 
Um, so we'll get into all that in the future. Uh, if there are particular things that you want us to deal with with Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, feel free to contact me. As always, I'm at editor at meaningofcatholic.com. And ultimately, uh, we want to highlight the uh, Our Lady of Fatima. Uh, here, one more comment here. Not to mention, for Michael J.C., he says, not to mention also the martyrdom of Latin saints at the hands of the Byzantines, such as St. Andrew Babola. Uh, yes, so th there's there's been bloodshed on both sides of this, and there's really not, you know, we're not going to stack up all the bodies and count them up and try to make our Eastern brethren lose because of this or that. This is not how Christians operate. So we're not going to hold these things, that the, you know, these past sins against our brethren. Because our Lord says, unless you forgive your brother from your heart, your heavenly father will not forgive you. So unless we're, we, we need to forgive anyone, if we want to go to heaven, you know, if we, if we want to burn in hell forever, we, good luck not forgiving anyone. That's not going to work. That's not going to work in our judgment seat. So we need to forgive our brethren if they did some evil to us, forgive them uh, as we pray in the, our father, forgive us our trespasses as we've forgiven those who trespass against us. There's a in the Greek text of the Our Father, there is what's called the aorist tense uh, in that uh, as we forgive those who trespass against us. So as we forgive those in the Greek is an aorist tense. So there's different tenses in Greek and uh, not always in the Latin. They don't always come through in the Latin. So the aorist tense refers to something that is past, that was done in the past, that's over and done with. It's already been completed. It's way back in the past. We're not even dealing with it anymore at all. So I come to God before I, after I have completely forgiven my brother, it hasn't, it's not even a problem anymore. And that's one of the, per, one of the pieces of being a Christian is meditating upon the words of our Lord, forgive them father for they know not what they do. And so this is one of the things that, that we must do as Catholics in order to attain eternal life in order to not be condemned to eternal damnation is to forgive our brother from our heart. So I want to bring up finally, our lady of Fatima. Um, here's uh, well, one more question from here from Dan, maybe your series could address why for every Ukrainian Catholic church I go to, I always see the filioque crossed out with marker in their liturgical books. It's confusing to us visitors. Oh yeah, sure. That, that's a, I can certainly address that uh, right now. So basically um, there are three, um, real quickly. <laughs> um, so, so basically the filioque is the filioque. First of all, is a Latin term. It's a Latin, um, it means, and from the sun and the Nicene creed of the, of Ni the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople was written in Greek. These were Greek councils in the three hundreds. And so the Nicene creed was drawn up in Greek and in Greek, it says, and uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and, and glorified. That's what it says in Greek. Okay. Now, that Greek creed was translated. It was translated to the east and to the west. So it was translated first into Syriac. So after the, the 300s, when the Syriac Christians were uh, alleviated from the persecution, they were under persecution during the 300s. So they had a council in 410, the Council of Seleucia Catesiphon. And in that council, they translated the Greek into Syriac. And when they translated that, they added a filioque. And it wasn't, and scholars dispute as to, as to whether or not it was in 410 or later. They're not sure. There's actually two different forms. There's two forms of the Syriac Nicene Creed. One of them has a filioque in it. I believe in the, uh, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so there's um, actually, let me just look this up real quick, because this is a lesser known. Uh, okay, so this is, um, I'm just quoting from The Church of the East, A Concise History by Wilhelm Baum and Dietmar Winkler, uh, page 16 in the English translation. It says, um, in the Syriac version, um, it doesn't have the full clause of, of, of the Holy, Holy Spirit as it is in, in, in the Greek creed in Constantinople. It has 
uh, and we confess the living and Holy Spirit, the living paraclete who is from the Father and the Son, and in one trinity, one essence, and in one will. Okay, so there's a Syriac version that includes some sort of filioque, meaning the Spirit is from the Father and the Son, okay? So that's in the Syriac, and, and now it gets translated into the West. Now, in the Latin Creed, there were three interpolations. Uh, two, the first two are relatively minor, but they conform the, the Greek creed to the ap existing Latin apostolic creed, the, the Apostles' Creed as we know it. And there were three total creeds in the West. There was the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the um, Quoi Volt Creed, which is the an Athanasian Creed. And uh, the Athanasian Creed had a definite filioque way, uh, and from the, the Spirit, from the Father, and the Son. And then um, the, the Latin Nicene Creed had a filioque added by St. Leander of Seville beginning in 586 in Spain. And then this spread to the Carolingians. So they had a Latin Nicene Creed that they were doing at the liturgy with this filioque. Um, and so the filioque um, is the... Um, and from the sun. So, so the Latin here, let me just grab it here. So the Spiritum Sanctum Dominum Vivicantum, qui ex patre filioque procedit. So the filioque is contained in, in this other Latin tradition as it is contained in the Syriac tradition. And so there were these multiple uh, traditions of the Latin text. So this became a point of contention between East and West because the Greeks we're looking at it only in a Greek way. And they said there can be no changes to the creed or they thought it was heresy or there's different opinions among the East. Um, so this is a back background to a complicated issue. And I try to give you just the, the broad spectrum of the whole filioque controversy. So the, the, uh, the Holy Unia, the Holy Unia, meaning the Eastern Catholic churches after Florence, there are, over uh, 1 million Eastern Catholic churches or Eastern Catholic Christians. Um, let me get the actual. So they are a very tiny minority in the overall universal church. Nevertheless, um, they, there are auto, uh, not, uh, sui juris Catholic churches within the Catholic church. So these are the Eastern churches. So the Ukrainian Catholic church is one of those. I believe it's the largest. So the current, I'm sorry, it's 13,209,000 approximately, according to uh, Ronald Roberson, Eastern Catholic Churches, Eastern Christian Churches, page 141. Um, so it's a significant amount, 13 million, but compared to 1 billion Catholics, uh, it's a tiny minority. Um, but Ukrainian Catholic Church and various uh, Eastern Catholic Churches have had... so. In, the, in their history, there has been what's called Latinizations. And Latinizations are an evil practice, which actually was condemned by Vatican II. Latinizations are, were imposed by various Eastern Catholic, or on Easter, various Eastern Catholic churches by basically a lot of bad Catholics, uh, whether that's for political reasons or for... Um, you know, these, these different, like the Portuguese empire or whatever, they were imposing various Latin liturgical customs and traditions on the Eastern apostolic traditions for various reasons. And it was an evil practice because it was denigrating legitimate Eastern customs and apostolic traditions in favor of Latin ones for no, no good reason at all. Now we make a distinction between Latinizations and just basic liturgical sharing. You know, East and West, we just share liturgical and devotional things. Whatever whatever is beautiful, true, good, and beautiful from East and West, we just share those things as Christians share. So that's one thing. That's fine. You know, like for example, like we have the, the Feast of the Holy Cross in uh, September 14. That is originally an Eastern feast. That's just the West taking something true, good, and beautiful from the East, incorporating in the West. Because it's beautiful. It's because it's great. There, now, there's a difference between doing that and saying your legitimate apostolic custom is inferior because it is Latin or because it's Greek or something like that. So this is 
some of the things that happened to originate the reinsertion, the insertion of the filioque into the Eastern Catholic churches. Now, I'm not making a claim that every filioque that's contained in any Eastern book is a Latinization, but some Eastern Catholics took on Latin things to simply sort of fit in with the overall church. And so there was, so for example, Ukrainian Catholic churches have a great devotion to the Sacred Heart, for example, which is a Western devotion. Uh, now, this is far more, I think, of a more of a spontaneous, uh, good devotional sharing between East and West, whereas some may have imposed the filioque on the East. So there's no reason to add the filioque into the Greek creed. It's not necessary because the Greek creed has always been Orthodox since since Constantinople one. 381. There's no, there's no problem with it. Uh, now, there's no problem with adding the filioque to these other Syriac Latin versions. There's no problem there either. Um, but what happened in, in some of these histories is that either these things were imposed or they were freely accepted by the Ukrainian Catholic churches. So they added this filioque in for various reasons, whatever the reason was. And since the 19th century, there's been a movement to reclaim among the Eastern Catholic churches a, a more solid Eastern tradition. So to, to, to reject some of the Latinizations, which were of, of bad faith of bad origin. So this is the reason that you may would might see, you know, an Eastern Catholic church, you go to a Ukrainian Catholic church and they say the creed in English and it doesn't say, and from the son, it's proceeds from the father who together with the father and the son. So that's, that's weird for you. If you're saying like, if you're used to the Novus order and you're saying that in English, it's going to say, you're going to say, and from the father, father and the son. Um, but uh, that's the reason it might be crossed out. So Dan was, sorry, that's a long winded answer to um, it is a complicated history. So I'm trying to give, uh, but this is the type of thing that we're talking about um, with this series is, you know, attempting to give a little bit more of the complexity of the situation uh, so there's nothing wrong with not saying the filioque in a in the Eastern Catholic Church. So bottom line is you you can go to an Eastern Catholic Church. You know many of us have found some refuge in the Eastern Catholic Church. If uh, the bishop shut down the Latin Mass, uh, it's nothing wrong with not saying the filioque. It's just the Greek version of the Orthodox Creed, the Catholic Creed, simply the Greek version. So that's all that is. Even if it's crossed out, that's just restoring the Greek version rather than the Latin version. They're both Orthodox. No, no need to fear about that. Uh, it's just part of an internal struggle going on here. Um, here's uh, Michael J.C. Also, maybe you could mention how the liturgy wars in the Latin church is seen by and even influences the Byzantines, both Orthodox and Catholic, as well as the other Eastern rites. Yeah, this is. This is a um, yeah, this is a this is really to me, this is the heart of the issue is the liturgy. Because the new iconoclasm, what, what I'm, I'm, I will be writing an article uh, eventually about how we are living through really the third iconoclasm. And East and West have already suffered an iconoclasm. So the Eastern iconoclasm, the first iconoclasm was in um, around 750 to 850. So there was a, a period of about 100 years uh, the latter part of the eighth century, which was an iconoclastic persecution of the faith in the East. So it was by the Eastern emperors. And it was, a, a some say the martyr, there was more martyrs during this time period than there was in, even in the early church, which is saying a lot. So it was a very vicious heretical persecution. So that was first iconoclasm. Then we have second iconoclasm was in the West. That was the Protestants. That was, they were, destroying churches and destroying everything. But now we have the third iconoclasm, which is actually East and West. It's mainly West because of the Novus Ordo and everything that's been happening, but it's also affected the Eastern Catholic churches. And so this is something that this is actually, you know, something that we can both unite against um, East and West. We can both unite against the third iconoclasm because unfortunately it has affected some Eastern Catholic churches. Um, and so there's this this wicked iconoclasm that we have been suffering. And this is what we're fighting against is, as traditional Catholics. We're fighting against the iconoclasm, especially in the Roman Rite, the iconoclasm of the Novus Ordo itself in its very texts and rubrics, 
is iconoclastic in its very principles, in, in what it has done to the Roman rite. Um, and this is the struggle that we're in. And it's a very difficult new struggle, but it is not insurmountable. Uh, and the Eastern Catholic, Eastern Catholics or Eastern Orthodox uh, certainly sympathize with this, especially if they look at it as a new iconoclasm, because that's what it is. Um, so, but th this is something that can really bring a lot of sympathy for us if Catholics are tempted to go Orthodox, because many of them have the their their Orthodox liturgy is perfectly intact in a lot of ways. Now there is there was actually another form of iconoclasm that happened in Russia in the 1660s. Uh, which is a little bit more subtle, but it is for is a little bit more analogous to the Novus Ordo situations. That, so they did, they did have a Novus Ordo problem in not in the same degree at all, not in the same degree at all. Like compared to, to the Novus Ordo, this was not a problem at all in, in Russia, but it was some of the same principles. It was the same. Some of the same principles of of iconoclasm happened in Russia, and. It, it caused actually millions of Russians to be excommunicated or massacred by the Russian czar. And there's a, a period of, of great uh, tragedy for Russian Christendom. And actually, this schism is, persists to this day in Russia. So it's called the Old Believer Schism. So anyhow, those are some of the things uh, that we we will get into eventually. And but this is just an introduction to the series, talking a little bit about this aspect of it. So we'll do some more podcasts when we when we've done more. Uh, we'll talk about the SSPX debate. Uh, what's that all about? We'll talk about uh, Spirit of Vatican One, things like that. Um, so, in any event, um, we are here at One Peter Five to rebuild Christendom. That's what we're about. And lastly, I want to bring up this icon, the icon of Our Lady of Fatima. This is an icon which was written by an Orthodox Christian. And this is the other point of unity, is that we need to rally around Our Lady of Fatima, because Our Lady of Fatima spoke of the heirs of Russia, and she was intimately involved with this whole Eastern struggle, this East-West struggle. And so this is really our unity, is Our Lady of Fatima. And so this is the Russian icon of Our Lady of Fatima, and there's actually a, a Russian Greek Catholic uh faithful in St. I believe it's St. Petersburg. And um, they are, this is, this is part of their mission is, is spreading our Lady of Fatima. So we need to do our part, which is uh, do our first Saturdays, pray our daily rosary for the conversion of Russia, for the consecration of Russia and for the intentions of our Lady of Fatima. And so this is, this is really our hope is that in the end, her immaculate heart will triumph. And this is the key, really, to this whole East and West debate, is Our Lady of Fatima. So uh, with that, let's let's close this out. Let's say Hail Mary, and then we'll be all up. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.